Thanks, Jamie, for uh, filling in for Chad. Chad is in Oklahoma City watching the Thunders play. No, the th- he's not watching. He's at a wedding for a friend. We'll be in Genesis chapter 16 this morning, so if you want to turn there, we'll have most of it up, up there, but if you want to turn in your, in your Bibles, that's where we'll be most of this morning. Uh, have you ever done something you regret? Never. Have you ever done something that had some consequences in your life? Today we're going to talk about a God of seeing, a God of seeing, but I want to tell you a little story about a doctor of seeing, a doctor of seeing. When I was uh, elementary school, junior high, can't remember, around there, my brother and I and my cousin, we went out to play baseball. We had our gloves and bat, and we went out to play baseball, and as usual, uh, baseball turned into boxing, and... Uh, and so I hit my brother, not an uncommon occurrence, I'm sad to say, uh, but this time I hit him right in the tooth and it cut. I still have the scar right here. Can you zoom in the camera? Zoom in right there. A little cut right there. And, uh, and so he was not happy with me, my brother, but uh, we, we decided before we went home we would uh, tell my parents that I cut it on a fence because if I hit my brother... It was because my brother did something, and they just said, you're, you're both grounded. You know, so he was, he was okay with that. So he told my parents I had cut it on a fence, and it didn't look so bad, cleaned it up. You know, went on from there. Okay, don't have to regret that. A couple days later, my hand was just getting, you know, I, I couldn't move, and I'm a kid, and I don't know these things, and so I'm hiding it, you know, and it's starting to get red, and I can't really even close my hand all the way, and... So I finally show my mom, oh, maybe it's got infected tetanus or something. She took me to the doctor. Doctor takes a culture. These doctors are saying they go look at it and they come back and the doctor looks at me and he says, are you sure someone didn't bite you? Uh, What did you say? Uh, What? And my mind is turning, oh, no, oh, no. How did he know that? Oh, these doctors, doctors have seen. But anyway, I eventually admitted what had happened and, and, uh, also spent three days in the hospital with blood poisoning and isolation. So there were immediate consequences to that sin, that sin of uh, anger and violence. What? And lying, oh yeah. (laughs) And lying, thanks for pointing that out. Maybe you've uh, had a similar experience with some bad consequences. Maybe the wrong financial or relational decision. Maybe the decision came after a, even a great high point in your life. Everything was going your way. Everything was doing fine. I can't fail. Or maybe the decision came out of impatience. I can't wait any longer. I need to do something, anything in Genesis 16, our passage for today, that's, that's what Abraham and, and Sarah are experiencing. They're, they're becoming impatient. In fact, in their minds, time is running out. And this causes them to do something, to take an action that will have long-lasting negative consequences. Last week, we saw Abraham on a high in his faith journey, didn't we? In chapter 15, God reassures Abraham of the promises he gave to him in in chapter 12. God appears to him, if you remember, as a smoking fire pot and a flaming 
torch. And God makes a, a commitment to Abraham fulfill, that he would fulfill his, his promises. He, makes, he does this covenant ceremony taken from Abraham's culture of the day. And after God establishes the covenant, Abraham's faith has to be sky high. Man, God would do this for me. God would come and reveal himself to me. Surely, surely this would make Abraham then immune to doubt and fear and distrust, right? Surely he would now be in a, a perpetual state of trust and obedience before the Lord, right? In Genesis 16, however, we have the infamous story of Abraham, still Abram, his wife Sarah, Sarai, and Hagar, Sarah's Egyptian maidservant. This story is full of of doubt and fear and distrust and wrong decisions and outright sin. We'll see rejection and hurt and anger and jealousy and even vicious cruelty. All of this occurs after Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And this should serve as a warning to us as as people of faith. As people who have believed God and it has been credited to us as righteousness. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We're not immune. We're not immune to the temptations of the enemy. We're not immune to fear and doubt and distrust. We're not immune to lying and violence. You should still, no matter, no matter how much faith you have today, you still need to trust in God tomorrow. Genesis 16 really breaks down nicely into, into two parts, and we'll, we'll go through both of those parts today. First, in, in in verses 1 through 6, it really focuses on the, the human problems, the sin. The self-caused problems of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. But the second part, verses 7 through 16, focuses on God's provision. In the midst of the problems, God intervenes. God is there, a God of seeing, as we'll come to see. He reveals himself. So let's think first about the human problems. As the story opens, Abraham and Sarah have been in the land of Canaan for about 10 years. Sarah is 75 years old and still childless, still barren. And in that day, barrenness was seen not as an inconvenience, but as a tragedy. Success meant having many children. Therefore, having no children meant utter failure. Sarah must have suffered great humiliation and pain. And from her perspective, time was running out. It was getting too late. She knew that God had promised Abraham an heir, an heir that would come from his own body. Remember, it wouldn't be Eleazar of Damascus, his servant. God would give Abraham a natural child. But no specific promise had been given that she would be the mother of that child. That promise would come. It would come in Next chapter, chapter 17, when God changes Sarai's name to Sarah. But at this time, there was no promise, and time seemed to be running out. So Sarah comes up with her own plan. That's our first point under human problems, is Sarah's plan. Verse 1 of of chapter 16, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant, 
whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. This is her plan. Now in our day, we would be opposed to Sarah's polygamous plan as morally wrong. But it was perfectly logical and acceptable in, in her culture. Her solution was probably great for everyone except for God. Let me give a pop quiz here for those that have been with us in our study in Genesis. Where did Hagar probably, when did A, excuse me, when and where did Abraham and Sarah probably acquire Hagar? In Egypt. Why were they in Egypt? Because of a famine and because they weren't trusted in God. And what did Abraham do when he went down to Egypt? What did he tell him? He lied. He lied. It was a half-truth, right? She was his half-sister, but she was also his wife. So it doesn't seem... So, so at that time, uh, when Pharaoh took Sarah, he also gave Abraham a bunch of stuff, including some servants. And it's more, more, more likely than not that that's when they received Hagar. So it doesn't seem like a good idea to include someone you acquired by deception to help fulfill the promises of God. But Sarah doesn't take that into account in her plan. Neither does she take into account the witches of Hagar, apparently. Hagar is treated as property. As far as we can tell, she has, she has absolutely no choice in the matter. And even though polygamy wasn't, was common in that day, God had made his will for marriage and procreation clear. One man for one woman. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is God's word from the beginning. But Sarah's plan didn't take God's will for marriage into account. And finally, and most importantly, the plan didn't take into account the power of God. She had given up on God ever intervening and providing a child through her. She'd given up on God. She had... Her plan showed she had lost her faith, her trust in God. She says to Abraham, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. She's not only given in God, up on God, now she's blaming God. It seems that in her mind, her plan, her plan would fix what God had failed to do. Not a good place to be. So how does Abraham, father of our faith, react to Sarah's godless plan. Second point there, Abraham's passiveness. If we have trouble with Sarah giving her, her, her handmaid, her servant Hagar to Abraham, we should have even more trouble with Abraham's passive response. He was supposed to be the leader. He, not Sarah, had just been in God's presence. He had heard God's voice. He had received God's promises. And God had given him no word, said nothing about including Hagar in his plan. But Abraham didn't question Sarah. Instead, we read the end of verse 2, and Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. Is this this passive man, the, the same leader who left his home to go to an unknown land, who was who selflessly and willingly gave Lot the choice of which land to to take, who courageously rescued Lot 
when he was captured by the four kings from the east and defeated them, who was in, who, who was in faith received a, a blessing from the king of Salem, the priest of the most high God, and rejected the offer of the wicked king of Sodom. Is this the same man who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness? Yes, it's the same guy. The same man who exercised great faith now experiences a great fall. Abraham passively follows Sarah's plan and takes Hagar as a second wife. Verse 3. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into her, Hagar, and she conceived. This just doesn't sound good at all. Hagar was treated like an object, not a person. This is not something that we can imagine God being a part of and improving. This fall brings to mind humanity's first fall in the garden. You remember it? Sarah's action seems to parallel that of Eve. Here Abraham listened to his wife just as Adam listened to his. Here Sarah took Hagar just as Eve took the fruit. Here Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham just as Eve gave the fruit to Adam. And in both cases, the men willingly and knowingly partook. And the rest is history. The world is experiencing the consequences of both falls to this very day. Bad decisions, sin, brings difficult and often terrible consequences. The Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Out of this one action, this clear sowing to the flesh, there would come both immediate and long-lasting consequences. We'll touch on those in a minute. But, but now we come to Hagar. Yes, she is the victim in all of this. It was done to her. But as we see, she too is, is not guilt-free. It doesn't take long to see Hagar's pride. Solomon probably had just read, I think, Genesis chapter 16 when he wrote Proverbs 30, 21 through 23, specifically verse 23. Listen to this. Under three things the earth trembles. Under four it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king and a fool when he is filled with food. An unloved woman when she gets a husband and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. An unloved woman, Hagar, when she gets a husband, Abraham. A maidservant, Hagar, when she displaces her mistress, Sarah. And as Solomon says, the earth begins to tremble under these things. Abraham and Sarah have treated Hagar like an inanimate object, an unfeeling inanimate object, a soulless baby-making machine. But when Hagar became pregnant, she grew proud. Second part of verse 4. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Hagar had succeeded where Sarah had failed. So she began to look down on her mistress. She saw her pregnancy as as a triumph over Sarah. Haughty looks were cast Sarah's way. Hagar strutted her pregnant self around 
and Sarah went ballistic. The earth really began to shake. And in the next two verses, we see the shaking ground erupt in anguish and jealousy and blame. The immediate consequences of Sarah's plan, Abraham's passiveness, and Hagar's pride are much relational pain. First, the relationship between Sarah and Abraham is clearly damaged. Verse 5, And Sarai said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Sarah blames Abraham for the whole situation. It's your fault, dude. Now, logically, Sarah was wrong to place the blame on Abraham. After all, it was her idea, her plan. But actually, she was right. Abraham was the head of the house. God had spoken to him, not to her. He should have never allowed for the situation. He was truly responsible for the wrong she was suffering. That word wrong in the Hebrew is actually the word violence. May the violence done to me, Sarah says. Sarah's feeling great pain and jealousy over what's taken place. Abraham, she cried out, may the, may the Lord judge between you and me. She appealed to the highest judge, and God was watching, as we'll see. Here's where Abraham should have, should have manned up, really. He should have acknowledged Sarah's pain. He should have taken her aside and, and assured her of his devotion and love to her. He should have, in humility, accepted full blame and responsibility. He should have dealt kindly and yet firmly with Hagar. He should have sought God's wisdom and repented in prayer. I know this because that's exactly what I do when I mess up with my wife. She's not here, she's downstairs, so I can say whatever I want. But that's not what Abraham did. He allows the pain to multiply by again responding passively. First part of six. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your own power. Do to her as you please. I see flashes of Pontius Pilate here. Abraham is saying, I'm I'm washing my hands of this. Under the customs of the day, if a concubine or second wife claimed equality with the first wife because she she had children and the other didn't, then the first wife had the right to take away the rights of the second wife. So Abraham says, go ahead. That's what the law says. I I wash my hands. Notice Abraham didn't do anything to help Hagar, who, by the way, he had just taken as a wife and been sleeping with. He only said, do with her as you want, dear. This must have been extremely painful. For Hagar. Abraham had clearly rejected her. He'd taken her in and then rejected her. And the pain continues. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, with Hagar, and she, Hagar, fled from her, from Sarah. Abraham rejected Hagar. Sarah abused Hagar. And so you can, you can't really blame her for for taking off. You know, the thing that stands out in these first six verses of this story with these three main characters So much pain is going on. They're all contributing to that pain. We don't really see any positive characters 
no nobility, nobody standing up. I, ha- I hate stories where there's no good guy, no hero. I remember years ago watching the movie, maybe some of you have seen it, Unforgiven. Title says a lot. It was the first big Western that, that Hollywood had made in many years. And I love Westerns. I was looking forward to the hero cleaning up the corrupt town, using his courage and his six-gun to deal with the, the outlaws, maybe chasing down, murdering bank ro- robbers, and, and certainly rescuing the damsel in distress. I love those kind of stories. But none of that took place in the rightly titled Unforgiven. I don't remember much about the plot, but I do remember waiting and just, come on, Clint, do the right thing, man. Clint Eastwood, the star, he, he was by definition a hero. He was a hero in every other movie he had been in. Maybe not someone always to follow, but he had always taken, the, taken the, up the side of those, the downtrodden. But I got none of that. There was none of that in this movie. Just, just a lot of unforgiving that led to a lot of pain and death and sorrow. And that's what we have in this story. And unfortunately, both this story and that movie are much more real to life than the typical John Wayne hero western that I love so much. Normally, we just see people doing what they think is best for them at that moment. And in our story, Abraham was certainly the worst. He was pathetic, passive, uncaring for either woman. Neither woman had any compassion on the other. Sarah was worse, but you get the idea that Hagar would have done the same thing to Sarah if she could have. Remember that all of this pain came because people of faith began to distrust God's word. They decided that God needed help in fulfilling his promise. And all they did was just mess up God's plan. So complicated, so painful. What could they do now? Even if they wanted to, how could they redeem this terrible situation? Well, they couldn't. But fortunately, God could. Remember I said in this story, there there aren't any heroes. But that's really only half true. There, There are no human heroes. The true hero, the true hero of the story shows up in verse 7 where we see God's provision. God's provision. And the first thing we see God do is pursue Hagar. God pursues Hagar. Remember, pregnant Hagar was rejected and abused, so she took off. And in verse 7, we read these words of hope. The angel of the Lord found her by a, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Shur is the name of a, of a desert near the Egyptian border. Hagar was, was heading home. I'm done with these people. I'm going back to my people. She was going to her people, and she was almost there. But the angel of the Lord pursued and found her. Some believe the angel of the Lord refers to, the, to God the Son, that this is a Christophany, and a, a physical appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, and I tend to agree. Angel is actually just the Hebrew word for, for messenger. It doesn't have to be a, an angelic being. But whether this was the son or not, his ministry, the ministry of this angel of the Lord to Hagar certainly reflects the character of Christ. He is either God or a representative of God in human form. 
Notice that Hagar was, wasn't seeking God, wasn't seeking the Lord, but he was seeking her. I've often heard the question, have you found Jesus? Have you found Jesus? Have you found the Lord? Have you found God in your life? When in reality, the question should be, has Jesus found you? Has Jesus found you? Jesus said in Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's what he's about doing. And, And there can be no doubt that at this point in Hagar's life, she is completely lost. But there, alone by the spring, Hagar encounters the Lord. As I read this part of the story, I I thought of Jesus in John chapter 4. Like Jesus with the woman at the well, it was obvious that this messenger knew everything about Hagar. He knew what had gone on. He, He had seen it. But he still engaged her with questions. Verse 8, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. With questions, he shows his his interest, his care, and his concern for her. And Hagar just tells it like it is. I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And then we read, the angel of the Lord tells her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Excuse me? What did you say? I thought you saw what was going on. I thought you saw my pain and, and what was going on, and now you're telling me to return to it? The Lord gives Hagar this command a command she certainly didn't want to follow, return and submit to Sarah. The Lord finds her and commands her to go back into a very painful situation. God sometimes commands us to do difficult things, doesn't he? In fact, he he does it a lot. Love your enemies. Preach the gospel to those that maybe don't want to hear it. Make disciples. That's That's a hard command to follow. Give to those who are in need. Give out of the things you've earned with your sweat and toil. Give to those who are in need and and so many more. God doesn't always ask us to do easy things. Oftentimes he asks us to do difficult things. Unfortunately, we don't believe that God would ever ask us to do anything that we didn't actually want to do. So we miss out on so much. No, that... That can't be, God. You're not talking to me, are you? I don't really know. You, you want to just keep blessing me and blessing me. But you know what? The greatest blessings in life come when you step out in faith, when you do something you don't feel necessarily comfortable with. God blesses us. And as we'll see, Hagar does obey, and Hagar is blessed. Our second point, God promises to Hagar. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Now in Genesis, and we've heard some of them in the life of Abraham, it has a number of instances where people are promised descendants. You will have many descendants. Remember Abraham, he's promised the stars of the sky and the dust of the ground would be, not that they would be their descendants, but if you could count them, you could count his descendants, equating his descendants with those uncountable things. But, but Hagar is the only woman to receive such a promise. Jacob receives it, Isaac receives it, but Hagar receives it. God pursued her, and then he honored her with this promise. And there's, there's more. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. 
You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. The name Ishmael means God has heard. God has heard. God has listened and God has heard. So now every time Hagar spoke her son's name, she would be reminded of this event. She would be reminded that that God hears. She would know that God listened to her affliction. Ishmael would be a, a living memorial that God pursued her, that God found her, and that God lifted her up out of her sorrow and pain. And there's more. He, Ishmael, shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Ishmael wasn't going to be one of those uh, compliant children. Anybody have one of those? At our house, we called that child Beth. And the other one we called Michael. Oh, sorry. Michael just was not the most compliant child. I'm not saying that Michael was a wild donkey, but he certainly was a handful. The wild donkey is used in the Old Testament as a figure of of someone who wants the individualistic lifestyle. Someone who, who has little concern for social niceties. Uh, stubborn as a mule wouldn't be too far off either. God says that Ishmael and his descendants would live in constant conflict with those around him, including and especially the other children of Abraham, those that were heirs to the promise through Isaac and then Jacob. Historically, Ishmael's offspring become the the Arab peoples, and they became a a thorn in the the flesh of Israel. They claim that, that through Ishmael, the firstborn, they are Abraham's best his truest representatives. Little did Abraham and Sarah imagine that their plans would cause a conflict that would run thousands of years with oceans of blood being spilt. Abraham, the father of the faithful, had begotten through Hagar a a wild man instead of a child of promise. How tragic that Abraham and Sarah chose that way instead of God's way. Now, so far, this story hasn't been, uh, has been a little depressing. At least from the, as we look at the actions of the humans. And as I said, there there are no human heroes here. But but now, in response to God's promise, we get a, a human bright spot. Not from Abraham or Sarah, but from the Egyptian, Hagar. Hagar praise, Hagar's praise of God. Hagar's response to the Lord pursuing and promising her, promising to her what was praise. Verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bear Lo Hiro. It lies between Kadesh and Bayrad. Hagar didn't rejoice only at the information that she was pregnant and that she would have a son and that there would be multitudes of descendants. But instead, Hagar gives praise to God. In amazement, she gives a a name to God and a name to a place where God found her. Both names praise God, praise the God that sees and therefore knows everything. He is omniscient, is what she's saying. 
She named, she, she named God, you are a God of seeing. And she named the well, bare low, high row, which means well of living one who sees me. And it should be noted that, that Hagar is the only person, male or female, in all of the Old Testament who gave a name to God. And what, what an amazingly spot-on, right-on name she chose. Hagar realized that God knew her, he saw her, he knew who she truly was, and that, and that he had taken the initiative to come to her in her affliction. She learned and trusted that God was watching over her. And she praised him for it. And as we'll see, she demonstrates her trust in God by obeying that very difficult command he gave to her. Return to your mistress and submit to her. Hagar returned and submitted to Sarah. James Montgomery Boyce said, said this about Hagar's return. The sense here is that she believed God and remained a child. She returned and remained a child of grace. She's the one human bright spot in this story. Chapter 16 concludes with the facts of her return and the birth of Ishmael. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Notice the story began with Sarah's plan. But in the end, she's, she's, she's not mentioned. Her plan was that Hagar would have a child, and that would become Sarah's child. But three times the text emphasizes that Hagar bore a son for Abraham, and Abraham confirmed the name Ishmael. God has heard. This would be Hagar's son, not Sarah's. But Ishmael was not and could not be that child of promise. Paul's commentary on on this event in Galatians makes that clear. Galatians 4, and 23. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. The flesh, the plans of Sarah, the plans of Abraham, the passivity, passiveness of Abraham. While the son of the free woman was born through the promise. And that's important to understand. We might ask, why did God care so much that the child was born through Sarah. And why did he freaking wait so long? I mean, she's 75 years old. Why did God do that? Well, I think he did it so it was totally clear to everyone then and throughout history that God did it. He specifically wanted to do something amazing that he did, and and they're trying to bypass this in the flesh. Ishmael was born of the flesh by a slave woman, the child of promise, would be the son of the free woman. So God's promise of many descendants through Abraham was no closer to being fulfilled after Sarah's plan. In fact, if anything, Sarah's plan, Abraham's passiveness, had delayed God's purpose. They had in many, they they had in reality made, made a mess of things, made it even more difficult. And as we'll see, as we continue in our study, these two women would never, would never get along. The conflict would escalate at the birth of Isaac. Hagar and Ishmael would be sent away, this time not to return. Ishmael would, would father 12 tribal 
rulers. These rulers would become, in a sense, an opposite or opposition to the later 12 tribes of Israel. The account of Ishmael ends this way. In, chapter, in Genesis chapter 25, verse 18, they settled from Havilah to Shur. This is Ishmael and his people, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Syria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. This wild donkey of a man. In many ways, this story is tragic. It clearly shows the vanity of trying to implement our own plans apart from God. The results of such prideful endeavors can have long-lasting and tragic consequences. We need to understand that apart from God, our plans do not ever promote his purposes. Our ways are not his ways. The consequences of Abraham and Sarah's actions are, are still being felt today. There's still conflict between the descendants of Hagar and the descendants of Sarah. Yes, God gives grace, but some sins cannot be undone in this world. And some of us know that from personal experience. There are certain sins that haunt us throughout our lives. Sin that causes pain, not only for us, but for others, for those we love. Sins with terrible and lasting consequences. Anger, abuse, adultery, drunkenness, fornication, greed, hate. Impatience, lies, lust, unforgiveness, just to name a few. Personally, I'm haunted by sins I committed in relationships before marriage. It's been over 28 years, but I still have the memories and the regrets. Yes, there is and has been forgiveness, restoration, redemption, but the pain remains. Sin leaves, even in the believer, a, a dirty footprint. So today, moving forward, we need to be, take a warning from God's word. As we face the choice, and it is a choice, to sin or not, remember there are consequences, sometimes terrible and lasting consequences. Even when those consequences aren't immediate, Abraham and Sarah didn't no, didn't see the havoc that their sin would cause for their descendants. But even if there aren't those long-lasting consequences, sin always damages our soul and the souls of others. When we don't trust God, when we take matters into our own hands, or when we plain just disobey his word, there are, even if we can't see them, terrible and long-lasting consequences. I pray that we understand and take to heart the warning that God's word provides for us. But it also provides more than a a warning. Because of God's intervention, it also provides great hope. As always, even in the worst of circumstances, even in the most difficult situations, we see God. God provides grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. He would give grace and love and mercy and forgiveness to Abraham and Sarah, even after this terrible debacle. He would come to them, and they would eventually give birth to the child of promise. God would allow. He didn't start over. He didn't throw them aside. He continued to work through them. And here in chapter 16, we get a clear picture of his grace and love and mercy and forgiveness. For he is a God of seeing, a God who knows us, 
The God who not only sees but pursues us. He listens to our afflictions. He finds us at our lowest points. Because often in our, in our pride, that's the only time we'll, we'll listen to him. That's the only time we're willing to hear from him. Hagar was used and abused. And she was also prideful. But God saw her. And he lifted her up from her affliction. Let me, let me assure you and, and encourage you that no matter what your situation, no matter what pain you're suffering, no matter what sin you've entered into, whether your pain is physical or emotional, whether it's caused by your own sin or the sin of others, let me assure you, God sees you. He knows you. And he's seeking you out. He knows you better than you know yourself. And his desire is to lift you up out of your affliction. He will bestow upon you his, his forgiveness. He will bestow upon you his love and his grace and his mercy. Why? Not because you deserve it. You don't. I don't. Hagar didn't. But because he is a God of seeing and knowing and seeking and restoring. So this morning, I think it's so appropriate. I mean, it's always appropriate, isn't it? There's always an appropriateness to coming to communion table. We can come with joy in our hearts, knowing that the God who, who sees saw our need. We were all, every one of us, at our lowest point possible. We were... Scripture says in John 3.18, condemned. We were already condemned. We were separated from God for all of eternity. But God saw us. He saw our need for a Savior. And in his love and grace and mercy, he sent Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus Christ to meet that need. He saw us in our affliction and he sent Christ to meet that need. Not only to listen to our affliction, but for those who trust in him, for those that put their faith in him, for those who, like Hagar, trusted and obeyed and returned to Sarah, he would lift us up out of our affliction into his presence. Let's remember the God who sees and provides for our greatest need. Join me in prayer as Jeff comes to lead us in communion. Father God, thank you that you are a God who sees. Lord, there is nothing, there is nothing that you don't know about us. And you still love us. You still forgive us. You still bestow upon us grace and mercy. Lord, I pray for myself and I pray for those here as we suffer affliction and pain that we wouldn't, wouldn't run from you, but we would run to you. Lord, that we would remember the sacrifice that you made as you saw us and then you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to wipe away our pain and sorrow and affliction and, and bring us into your presence. Lord, help us to celebrate coming into your presence this morning. In Christ's name, amen.